reading is taken from Acts chapter 14, verses 21 to 28. They preached the good news in that city among a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for each of them in the church and, with prayer and fasting, committed them to the Lord, in whom they had put their trust. After going through Pisidia, they came into Pamphylia, and when they preached the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. From Italia they sailed back to Antioch, where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. On arriving, there they gathered the church together and reported that God had done through them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And they stayed there a long time with the disciples. And now we turn to that second reading, which is, in fact, the first part of chapter 14 of the book of Acts, where we find Paul and Barnabas in the town of Iconium. At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went, as usual, into the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Gentiles believed. But... The Jews who refused to believe stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there speaking boldly for the Lord, who confirmed that message by his grace by enabling them to do miraculous signs and wonders. The people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, others with the apostles. And there was a plot afoot among the Gentiles and Jews, together with their leaders, to ill-treat them and stone them. But they found out about it and fled to the Lyconian cities of Lystra and Derby and to the surrounding country, where they continued to preach the good news. In Lystra, there sat a man crippled in his feet who had been lame from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking, and Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and called out, Stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Laconian language, The gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus. Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes, rushed out into the crowd, shouting, Men, why are you doing this? We too are only men, human, like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made heaven and earth, the sea, and everything in them. In the past, he let nations go their own way, yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their season. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. 
Then some Jews from Antioch and Iconium came and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered round him, he got up and went back into the city. The next day, he and Barnabas left for Derby. Paul's first missionary journey takes just two chapters in the book of Acts. It starts at chapter 13, and then almost before you know it, he's completed the journey by the end of chapter 14. There's a sense of speed, of rapidity, and that's exacerbated by the way in which Luke skips through the return leg of the journey in the space of just five verses. Yet consider this. The distance that he had travelled by sea and on foot would have been in the region of between twelve and 1,500 miles. Just the time spent travelling from place to place would have been in excess of seven weeks. For Paul, Barnabas and John Mark to make this journey would have cost in the region of 18 months' wages. And the financial cost would have been considerably more had John Mark not pulled out early on. The time span of these two chapters in Acts is probably a period of about three years. That needs to be borne in mind when you read of Paul visiting this town and planting a church there, then another town and planting another group of disciples there. This was no lightning strike for the gospel. This was consuming, demanding work. And it was immensely costly at a personal as well as a financial level. Reading between the lines, it looks as if things started to go wrong as soon as they left Cyprus. Not that things have been easy on that island with the fraught confrontation that had taken place between Paul and Elymas, the magician there. But when Paul, Barnabas and John Mark landed from Cyprus on the shores of Turkey in Perga and Pamphylia, something happened that made John Mark decide he had enough and he was heading for home. And there's palpable evidence that he left Paul and Barnabas in the lurch. Because later on when, Paul, when Barnabas wanted to give John Mark a second chance, Paul would have none of it. He refused because he felt John Mark had proved to be too unreliable. Now if, and admittedly it's a very big if, Paul's letter to the Galatians was written to the churches that were established on that first missionary journey... Then in that letter, Paul explains that the only reason he visited Antioch, Iconium, Lystra and Derby at all was because he had been taken ill or was suffering from some kind of weakness in the flesh, as he put it. What that was, we don't know. But if, if that reconstruction is right, something happened in Perga and Pamphylia to lay Paul low and that was enough to scare John Mark to send him back home again. Paul may have suffered from some kind of eye disease. There's been speculation that while in Perga, in Pamphylia, he contracted malaria and headed up into the hills around Antioch and Pisidia to recover, a journey of some 100 miles. But whatever illness it was that Paul contracted when they landed in Turkey, he must have cut a pretty pathetic figure. Because he says in his letter to the Galatians how easy it would have been for them simply to turn away from him in revulsion at his condition. But if this reconstruction is right, it means that those churches that were planted as a result of the first ever planned international missionary expedition were planted by Paul in a context of extreme personal and physical vulnerability and weakness. And everywhere he and Barnabas went, trouble dogged their footsteps. When opposition began to rise against them, uh, Their response was not simply to run away, but to stay the course 
and to confront it and to continue to be there. That was their response in Iconium. When people began to oppose them, they spent a considerable time there, it says. But they were kicked out of Pisidian Antioch after Paul's first sermon set up controversy within the town. In Iconium, they eventually had to leave because there were plans to beat them up and to stone them. In Lystra, Paul actually was stoned and left for dead. How he managed the 30-mile trek from there to Derby is anyone's guess. It's a measure of the strength of feeling that Paul and Barnabas had provoked. The Jews, who had opposed him in Iconium, travelled 120 miles from Antioch and Iconium to Lystra to stir up trouble against him there and to have him put to death, or so they planned. It may be that the only reason that Paul and Barnabas were left undisturbed in Derby was that people had assumed he was dead and had left to return to their homes again, thinking that was a job well done. So when Paul later writes to Timothy about the persecution and suffering he endured in Iconium, Lystra and Derby, he wasn't joking. In 2 Corinthians, written between 6 and 10 years after these events, he catalogues his trials. He'd undergone numerous imprisonments, been flogged many times, almost lost his life on more than one occasion. He'd received 39 lashes from Jewish courts on five occasions. He'd been beaten with rods three times. He mentions the incident of being stoned in Lystra. He'd been shipwrecked three times, once spending a day and night in the open sea. While on the move, his life was in constant danger from crossing rivers, from bandits, from Gentiles in his own countrymen in the city, in the open country, and in danger at sea as well. He often worked so hard that he went without sleep, and he talks of suffering hunger, thirst, and exposure. And beyond all this, he says, there's the pressure of my daily concern for the churches. And you can see how strong that concern was when he reached Derby, the furthest point of this first missionary journey. This town had proved to be a place of safety for him, a place where he could recover from his wounds. Derby was just 100 miles from his hometown, Tarsus. And Tarsus was on the way home. Antioch in Syria, where the journey had started, was just 150 miles beyond that. So they could have just done a loop and returned home the quick way and got home without too much bother or safety. But instead, having recovered in Derby, he says to Barnabas, right, we're going back. We're going to retrace our steps again to the towns where we were persecuted and stoned and oppressed and afflicted. All those troubles, we're going to go back to those towns again. Why? So we can encourage and support the fledgling churches that we've planted. So that we can show the disciples that are there that we're committed to them. We want to make sure that they are okay. This was no hit and run evangelistic effort then. Jetting in and jetting out to safety. Paul went back to strengthen the disciples. To encourage them to remain in the faith. To find suitable local leaders who they could support, appoint to support the disciples in their absence. Appointing them with prayer and fasting. And warning them that only by going through many hardships and difficulties would they enter the kingdom of God. No suggestion then that becoming a Christian is going to solve all your problems and give you a wonderful life. Far from it. In the event, if the letter to Galatians was written to these churches, the worst problem came from a totally unexpected quarter. Paul saw the blood, sweat and tears of those three years of church planting and toil being trampled all over by the hobnailed boots of hardline Jewish believers who were insisting that Gentile Christians must be converted to the Jewish faith and be circumcised before they can be received and accepted by God. 
When you get an insight into how much planting these churches are cost Paul, you can understand perhaps something of the raw emotion and strength of feeling that he, that he expresses in Galatians. He makes no attempt to hide from these new believers how angry he is as he chides them for being so stupid as to abandon the gospel he preached to them so quickly. Yes, the concern that was in Paul's heart for his churches was a particularly heavy burden to carry. And time and again he found that opposition to the gospel came not just from those to whom he was taking it, but actually from those within the church as well. So why do it? Why go to all that trouble? Why endure so much at so much personal cost? To some extent, he had no choice. It was his calling. It was what God had chosen him to do. God had set him apart for this task. He had to do it. If if his belief in God was to account for anything at all, he had no choice but to do what God wanted. But it was more than that. He knew that all the people he met, all the people he preached to wherever he went, were people for whom Christ had died. There were people who were infinitely precious to God who needed to hear the good news of Jesus. That's why wherever he went, he preached of how Christ had been crucified for the sins of the world. How his death had set people free. How by believing in him, people could receive the Holy Spirit and find the one true and living God for themselves and receive eternal life into the bargain. It was a message that had an impact, that turned people's lives upside down and turned communities upside down as a result. Look at that man in Lystra who'd been lame from birth and who was healed by his faith in Christ. Such miracles were not uncommon when Paul preached the gospel. And nothing delighted him more than when people were set free from their sense of being enslaved to idolatrous spiritual powers that govern their lives and experienced a life-changing, liberating encounter with a true and living God who poured out his Holy Spirit into the hearts of anyone who put their trust in Jesus and called on his name. That's why Paul and Barnabas were so dismayed when the population of Lystra assumed that they were gods in human form. Nothing could have been further from the truth. But the fact that people responded to them in this way is an indication of the kind of impact that they made. That kind of lifestyle, that kind of engagement with people beyond the church, that kind of calling and suffering and commitment to the gospel can sometimes seem a long way removed from our settled, comfortable, reassuringly predictable routine of regular attendance on a Sunday at Brighton Road Baptist Church. Friends, if that is all our faith boils down to, turning up to church once or twice a week, we have lost touch with the power of the gospel and its capacity to change lives and change the world. When was the last time you were excited or inspired by your faith? What difference has Jesus made to you? Let me push the envelope a little bit more. When was the last time you were sufficiently excited or inspired by your faith to talk to somebody else about it? And if that hasn't happened for a very long time, that doesn't mean that you should give up on God and stay at home on a Sunday morning because the preach is too challenging. It may just perhaps mean that we've become a little bit too settled and comfortable in our Christian existence. Because God wants so to inspire us and excite us, and challenge us, that like Paul, we have no choice actually, but for that to spit out of our lives in some way, shape, or form, and share the good news of Jesus 
with other people. Sometimes in the United Kingdom, and I speak from experience of 30 years in the ministry, coming to church can feel a little bit like gathering together to watch the embers of a dying fire. Is that too radical? Is that too close to home? The end of an evening, it's cosy and warm and comfortable, and we all huddle together around the fire because it's getting dark and cold outside. And sooner or later, we all drift away to our homes where we can tuck up in bed and be warm and comfortable and secure at home. But God doesn't want the church in the UK to be like a dying fire that draws us close to its warmth. God's vision is for the church to be a furnace that smelts the ore out of our lives so that he can fashion the resulting tin, copper, bronze and iron into tools that he can use to achieve his purposes. So if all there are is the embers of faith, God's desire is to send his spirit to stir those into flame and for us to play our part by stoking the fire, dragging ourselves away from the cosy warmth of what is left of it to look for more fuel to burn on it. That means no longer looking inwards where it's reassuringly comfortable, but instead looking outwards, because the fire isn't just there to keep us cosy and warm. In the words of a sermon by someone called Dean Vaughan, it's the enkindling of Christian souls with the fire of love and the fire of zeal and the fire of an outspoken boldness and the fire of even an impatient and intolerant hatred of misery and wickedness. It's this which has done great things in the earth in the name of Christ and God. It's this which has demolished idols. It's this which has at last toppled down slavery. It's this which has made missionaries strong and martyrs brave and churches militant. It's this indeed which has provoked the rage of the devil and the world, but has also shown enemies open and secret that greater is he that is within us than he that is in the world. Jesus said, I am come to send fire upon the earth, and what would I but that it were already kindled? It is kindled now. Ages and generations have lived in the blaze of that fire, and Christ who knows what is in man loves that fire better than the tame sluggishness, the lifeless torpor, the false peace which prevails everywhere where that fire comes not. Already kindled. Is it kindled around us? Is it kindled in us? Are we a stagnant, torpid, lifeless multitude? Or are we of the kindled, inspired, living and life-breathing few? The spirit that inspired Paul to spend those three years going from town to town, facing opposition, so that he could share the good news of Jesus with people who'd never heard it before, is the same spirit that lives in your heart if you are a Christian. It's the spirit who wants to take hold of your life and inspire you to live 100% for God 100% of the time. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ is still a spiritual force that can change people's lives and can change the world. To paraphrase Paul, it is the power of God for the salvation of anyone who believes, no matter who they are or what they have done. Jesus gives us a cause that is important enough to give everything for, to live our lives for, to devote every ounce of our energy and devotion to it. As the song says, Jesus, all for Jesus, all I am and have and ever hope to be. And I don't know what Ignite are doing in the chapel this morning, but on the, on the whiteboard there was a list of questions. 
How should I do it? What can I achieve? How much will it cost? What are the risks? The answer to the first question, surely, how should I do it, is in the power of the Spirit and the grace of Jesus Christ. The answer to the next three is the same. What can I achieve? How much will it cost? What are the risks? Everything. 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 Let's pray.